Hello, laughers. Thanks for listening to the Laugh Podcast. You might notice something a little bit different about our theme songs today. International singer-songwriter J.P. Kaleo performs our introduction, Doghouse, along with his collaborator Brian O'Shea. Please visit his website at jpcaleomusic.com to hear more of his wonderful work. You can also go to iTunes and download his music there. While you're there, give us a quick review and a rating at the Laugh Podcast. We sincerely hope you enjoy our review today. Flying Bull Productions presents Laugh, Literature, and Film. There ain't enough of beer or whiskey to get me through the night. And enough of moonshine to heal this heart of mine I'm in the doghouse again Feel like I can never win Alright, it's the good stuff. Yeah. It's the Laugh Podcast. We're your host. Over there is the uh, Two Frames. Howdy. I'm the L Train. We're going to be talking today about two different movies that we, well, that I watched on the same day. And it affirmed my my belief that I am not a sociopath <laughs> in a very strange way. So the litmus test for psychopaths now is two films? Psycho and socio. Oh, well, uh, either way. Socio, yeah. I don't know. I figured, I found out that I actually have emotions. So this is actually a good experience this past <laughs> weekend. Uh, the first movie is the Illumination Studios uh, release uh, animated films, the highest grossing animated film of all time. Opening weekend. Opening weekend, which bodes well for you Mm -hmm. in the box office challenge. Uh, Minions. Oh, Walter, look! These adorable little freaks are headed to Orlando, too. You're going to VillainCon, aren't you? VillainCon! I'm going to get all my favorite villains to sign my magazine. Scarlet Overkill! If I was a minion, that's who I'd want to work for. Yay! Welcome to the Villain Time, the biggest gathering of criminals anywhere. What about you? Any evil talents? Hello! That's not evil or a talent. Ah. It's a movie about minions. Uh, voiced by director, the minions are voiced by director Pierre Coffin. It stars uh, also um, uh, Scarlet Overkill is played by Sandra Bullock. Oh, I was going to say Sally Field. <laughs> no Sally Field. Uh, John Hamm plays her husband. Uh, it's also got voice performance by Michael Keaton and Allison Janney. Uh, there's also a voiceover narration provided by... Steve Coogan? Oh, I don't know. That's a shame. You know what? I'm psychologically leaving him out because I think that it would have been a better film if they had left him out. If they had left him out of the movie, I think that it would have been a better film. If you consider... Think about that. Think about how how much he dominated the movie. And then consider leaving him out and then expressing all of those things visually. Yeah, but... Uh, again, sometimes that's hard to show stuff visually. It's right. easier to just say do it than. But hard is not necessarily a bad thing. Like we learned this from uh, 
from Yves Perret in Tango and Cash. Yeah, a narrator is quicker and easier. Yes, quick and easy is how you make a cake, or clean a toilet bowl, or shop by mail. But it's not necessarily how we have to do a, a movie. Like uh, Inside Out didn't take those um, didn't take those those shortcuts. I thought there was a narrator. No. Well, well, you had so. the guys. You had the emotions narrating stuff. Oh yeah, giving voice to it. All. Would have been hard to have the minions voice it. Jeffrey Rush. Right. That's the narrator's name. Yeah. I, I I don't know. Sometimes it's easier to write something on a page and just say, here, show it visually. Um, in the movie Troy, when Brad Pitt fights uh, Hector, it's, in the script it says they fought in godlike fashion. It's easy to write. Sounds cool. But how do you actually show that? It's kind of difficult. I think they did a pretty good job of showing it, though. That's the second director thing. Yeah. I don't know. I think that they relied on the crux of the narrator for the ch- for the kids, which is fine because it's a kids' movie. I just think it made it a little bit of a lesser film, like the way that the the the, the opening montage where they develop through time, mm-hmm. um, didn't necessarily need the voiceover narration. You could figure it out by watching it. Well, and that's something. I I I wish that they had expanded on that. We could have spent more time with the minions as they're going through these various different bad guys that they're following yeah right ironically when sandra bullock shows up that's when the movie sort of starts to tail off in fact that's where i sort of started to fall asleep well and they seem to be trying to push to get there really quickly where uh maybe if this was a pixar film they would have taken more time developing the characters at the beginning i'm thinking of like wally they spend a lot of time with that robot all by himself and it's a silent film basically for the first 20 minutes or better yeah so there is no voiceover narration. It would have been easy to talk about the robot and how he's feeling with the narrator. But instead, Pitsar just chose to show it and spend a lot of time developing his character. Made it a better film. That's my so, point with me. Yeah, I, maybe it's possible. I, I don't know. I don't Thanks, know what the storyboard uh, process was with this film and uh, how much time they had to work on it. I think that they they did the best. that they. I think that they want to put out a good product. I don't think it's just all fart jokes and... Uh, you know, head trauma. <laughs> yeah. But there's a good deal of that, which is okay. I like the Three Stooges. just don't know if I like Kevin and Bob and Stuart as the Three Stooges. They they weren't my favorite part of the movie. i tell you what was, though. Overall, the group of minions, like, left back in the cave. Whenever they had their interactions, the whole, uh, you know, the, the whole uh, cabal, Mm-hmm. I guess of minions, the 886 that are left, or 896 that are left back in the cave. Whenever they had their stuff going on, I, I laughed. I laughed at their depression, <laughs> which leads me to believe I might be a sociopath. But uh, no, I just thought I kind of liked their interactions. It was funny. It was cute, and it was what I wanted. It was when the story became the focus that the movie lost focus for me. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. My biggest problems were there were too many adult jokes that got in the way of the story. They tried to put in a lot of stuff for the parents taking their kids to go watch this. Well, I appreciated that because I would have been bored. Yeah, I mean, there are ways to do it so it doesn't get in the way of the script. Like, there's a scene where the minions are in Britain, they poke their heads up through a sewer cover, yeah. and they get stepped on by the Beatles as they're crossing Abbey Road. Right. For the kids, it's funny because 
they're getting hit in the head. For the adults, they can laugh and go, oh, it's the Beatles. That's a funny reference. It doesn't get in the way of the story. But there were too many other moments where they made a joke. uh, I'm thinking of when all the minions are coming to Britain, and they're like, Britain, Britain, Britain. And they're walking down this dock, and you think that they're in Britain if you're a kid because you don't recognize the Sydney Opera House behind them, and that, and you know that they're actually in Australia. And the next shot, they're riding in kangaroos. And the kids in the theater, you could tell they were confused. Okay. It, it just didn't I work. Know. I wasn't paying much attention to the kids in the theater. Because I'm it's like a visual you. gag for the adults, but you could just tell there was confusion by a lot of the audience because they didn't know that, oh, that's the Sydney Opera House. A, yeah. a five- or a seven-year-old's not going to get that. Maybe a smart five- or seven-year-old would. I, I think it just it gets in the way of the story. And it became really confusing for the kiddos. I think you should entertain the most intelligent of seven-year-olds. That's why you should be focusing your attention on the smart kids. No, I... I know what you're saying. That I, And by the way, you effectively ruined uh, two, two jokes. The, yeah. yeah but the I, only two visuals those are that, butt that, were, that weren't... <laughs> No, there's more in the trailer. It's so sad, though. The trailer was... There are lots of references to the time periods and stuff. There's a lot of good songs. Yeah. And if you're into the British invasion, then you'll like it when they finally do get to Britain. I think there's some good stuff in New York, too. Mm -hmm. 1960s New York. But I... There would have been no reason for the... This is where the movie lost. There would have been no reason for the minions to leave the water. To follow the, the... creature that can barely move on land when they have a megalodon to follow around we learned that from jurassic world oh you think they would have always stayed in the sea <laughs> yeah they wouldn't follow that that weak small little whatever it was onto the land so anyway in the opening t- title sequence the yeah. movie is ruined uh, all right, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to worry too much about plot holes in this film. I no, mean, it is a kid's <laughs> film, but... Uh, I wish, I I don't know, I was so disappointed. I, mean, I think the kids will like it. It's going to do well. It's going to continue to hold up for the next two, three weeks in the box office. Mm. There's really nothing coming out that's going to try and push it out. I know, it might, like I said, it might be the top grossing uh, film of the year. Yeah. No, maybe. Nah, no, probably not. Not the top grossing film of the year, but the top grossing animated film of all time. I don't know, it's got it's to cracks a like a billion. I mean, it, it might. I don't know. It, it's fine. It's not great. I don't see this game nominated for any Academy Awards other than maybe Best Animated Movie. Yeah, I don't know. But uh, we previously reviewed Inside Out, and I think you had said you think it's going to get nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, I think it will. That's another one of my many predictions. Yeah, I don't know if it'll get nominated. I need to start writing some of these predictions down. Yeah, I don't know if Inside Out gets nominated for Best Picture. It's definitely going to get nominated for Best Animated Film, and it's going to win for that. Will it get nominated for Best Animated Film if it's nominated for Best Picture? Like, you thought Lego Movie was going to get nominated as Best Animated Film last year and didn't get nominated for either. No, I guess it got nominated for Best Animated, but not Best Picture. Right? I don't even think it got nominated for Best Animated. No, I think they disallowed it because there was some live action in the film. It didn't qualify as animated uh, by the rules, but apparently there was a lot of scuttlebutt about that. Wow. So, uh, I don't know. Minions was fine. Yeah. It, I it, haven't been more disappointed since I found out I needed to have a root canal. 
if you have a five-year-old and they want to see it, they'll like it. You know I was excited to see this movie. I know. This was probably one of your most eagerly anticipated films of the yeah. entire year. Now I have to look forward to something else. Yeah. Do you, do you have another eagerly anticipated film? No, I don't. Star Wars? No, uh, The Re- the Revenant, probably. Uh, the, the movie with Tom Hardy and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, but I think that it got moved. So I don't know if that's going to release this year or not. All right. Fair enough. Yeah, very different movie. <laughs> All right, so what was the other film? The uplifting the movie that, that transformed The weekend for me, which ironically I saw it before I saw Midian's, was Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. I have no idea how to tell this story. I don't even know how to start it. This is the story of my senior year of high school and how it destroyed my life. Your father and I want to talk to you about something sad. Rachel Kushner has been diagnosed with leukemia. That sucks. It sucks. It sucks quite a bit. You might be someone who could make Rachel feel better. I don't need your stupid pity. I'm not here because I pity you. I'm actually here because my mom is making me. (laughs) It's actually worse. These are the notes written by Mercedes J. Howells, uh, the movie scene queen, uh, in her article online. And uh, she says, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl is a hip-hop or a hip book turned movie about a socially awkward high school senior who befriends a dying girl. Starring Thomas Mann, Olivia Cook, and R.J. Seiler, the gang, through quirky homemade films and multi-dimensional wit, reroute their high school experience when a classmate declares her terminal illness. I don't know if that's completely accurate, but that gives the gist of the movie. Um, it's directed by Alfonso gomez Rejon, who was the director of Glee, uh, some of the episodes of Glee. I don't know of all of them. Does a lot of TV work. Uh, American Horror Story. I think he won uh, an Emmy for some of those. Yeah, he's he's got a weird uh, filmography. He either does the teen stuff or he does horror. His only other film that he's directed is The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Uh, he's got an interesting movie coming out uh, next couple of years, though. Collateral Beauty. I love that title. With Hugh Jackman. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Do you like the title Barely Lethal? No, no, no that doesn't work as well. Collateral beauty, though. I, I like that. A tragic event sends a New York ad man on a downward spiral. That looks like an interesting movie as well. If he handles that as well as he handled me and Earl and the Dying Girl, then it should be a really good movie. This was written by uh, Jesse Andrews, who wrote the movie and the screenplay, and it was his first screenplay. I don't know if it's his first novel or not. Um, you, I went to go see it and was surprised to find that I actually have emotions. <laughs> I found myself weeping. Yeah. Almost openly. Almost openly? Yeah. Without reserve. Yeah, no, it's a sad movie. I mean, it's a movie about cancer. But I don't like to cry, so I was pulling myself back from it. You don't if find I it cathartic? No, I find it gives me a headache. <laughs> so I, there were times when, and we can get into it later, where I kind of, uh, I kind of had to stop. But I also laughed, as well. I also, I, I mean, the first third of the movie moves really quickly, really well paced. It's and it's, uh, it's smart, and it's witty, and it's funny, and it made me laugh. Like some of the characters, uh, the father 
the guy who plays um, his dad, Nick Offerman, is like a sociologist or a sociology professor or something. He's into weird food. He becomes a running gag throughout the movie. Well, the whole supporting cast is strong. I don't know if it was one weak performance out of the bunch. Yeah, the acting was among the best that I've seen. I'm making another prediction. Olivia Cook wins Best Supporting Actress. Right now, I'd say she wins Best Supporting Actress. She'll be nominated, and she'll win over Alicia Vikander for Ex Machina. And I don't know who else is going to get a supporting actress. You think not. her performance was stronger than Alicia Vikander in Ex Machina? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, she floored me. Okay, because you were over the moon about Ex Machina. I know. Okay. That's why I like this movie so much. The acting is great. The directing is great. I think the writing is great. It's not a perfect movie. It goes off the rails a little bit for several reasons we can probably get into later, but enough about me. What do you think about me? Uh, I, went, I actually took my wife, this, uh-huh. um, and I was able to tell her why she would want to go see this, and it was because it's very similar to A Fault in uh, Our Stars which was another teenage cancer movie from last year. This, this is her genre. Yeah, this is one of her genres. The teenage cancer. Her other one is English movie. Scientist. <laughs> wow, you can combine those two. Yeah. Mega genre for her. Yeah. Um, so we went and saw it. It's a lot better, than, I think, than uh, Faults in Our Stars. One of the differences, though, is that it focuses more on the kid that doesn't have cancer. Where Faults in Our Stars, both the kids have cancer, and it focuses a lot on the disease. This stays off to the sides for most of the film. Yeah. Um, which I thought, it's an interesting approach. Uh, also, the, the main kid, he shouldn't be as likable as he is. And I don't know if that's the script being smart, or if it's the actor. Because you could really hate that kid, that main character. Well, he, he winds can... up isolated and alone at times for the reasons that you just mentioned. His yeah, but... Abilities. But I'm always rooting for him in the film. He I... doesn't want to be disliked, unlike some of the other characters, some of the other side characters that actively alienate themselves. There's another character that plays a small role, but an important role as a contrast to his isolation. Because mm-hmm. his isolation is sort of like a form of protection. Yeah. I'm just saying, the young actor, this uh, Thomas Mann, he did a very nice role, or a nice job in the role. He kept that character likable. It's like a young Matthew Modine. Okay, I can see that. Yeah. Um, I, I thought the cinematography was really good for this film. It felt a little bit like Wes Anderson. Yeah, it's kind of quirky like that. And for the first 20 minutes or so of the film, I was trying to figure out where this was filmed. Later on, it comes out that they're in Pittsburgh. And now I want to move to Pittsburgh. It just seems like an awesome city. Wow. The the design of the streets, uh, the, the buildings are all awesome. The school is where I want to go teach. I want an office like that. Or Shenley even a classroom. High school. Yeah. I think Andrews went there, right? I think Me and Earl and the Dying Girl is an interesting film. Uh, because the director is pretty new. The cast is pretty new. Like there are just a lot of people that I want to go and see what they do next after this film. Well, it won the grand jury prize, and the audience award in the U S dramatic competition at the Sundance film festival. So 2015, that uh, director, mm-hmm. Alfonso Gomez Rejon began his career as a personal assistant to Scorsese oh, and uh, Robert De Niro and Alejandro Gonzalez in or in 
Um, and he was a second director or second unit director for Nora Ephron, Scorsese, Ben Affleck. He worked on that movie, uh, Argo mm. as a second unit director. He, um, I, I saw all the thank yous listed at the end of the movie because I couldn't get up right away and walk out because I was too busy crying. So I saw Scorsese, a thank you to De Niro. It just seemed odd. And then at the very end, they also list all the titles of the fake movies that me and Earl, or that Earl and uh, Greg Greg do together. So that was, I, I kind of wanted to write some of those down. It's pretty funny. Yeah, it'll be interesting to get the DVD of this film. Because I bet as a bonus, you can watch all these films ah, that they I'd did. I'd love to watch those films. <laughs> so funny. Um so the thing that intrigued me most about the movie going in, it wasn't an experiment necessarily to see if I was going to cry. Although I did hear that people were crying. I, I just kind of thought, you know, whatever. People cried in whiplash. I mean, I didn't cry in whiplash. So, um, But this Earl kid intrigued me just because it was in the title and it wasn't any of the marketing that I could tell. Like I didn't watch a whole lot of spoilers, but they didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about Earl. So just him being right there in the middle of the title mm-hmm. that that intrigued me and uh i wanted to see what this earl guy was all about this is uh rj seiler's first movie of any note um but i thought his acting was was pretty good i mean he he sold it as a teenager he's a surly sort of um intellectual teenager you know there's not that many that fit that type that we know but I mean, he looked like he could have plucked him right out of our school. Yeah, and he doesn't have a whole lot of lines, but he does well. He creates depth in his character. He's going to be in a, a mini series on HBO in 2016 called Vice Principals. I'm interested to see his work. Yeah, in that. Danny McBride. Yeah, that's about a team of vice principals who call the shots at their high school. Sounds about right. It's a it's a comedy, but it's not a mini series. 18 episodes. Yeah, but apparently, like, there's not going to be a second season. Oh, okay. At least that's my understanding. Things could always change, you know, if it gets great ratings. Maybe they blow up the school at the end. Or it could be that all the kids fail, and they all have to come back the next year, which is what they did on The White Shadow. Didn't they also do that in Welcome Back, Cotter? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think they had to do it in Welcome Back, Cotter. But I know that they did it in The White Shadow. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Good um, stuff. Um, I also, I, I liked uh, the guy who played Mr. McCarthy, John Bernthal. He was on The Walking Dead, and he's also going to be in uh, season two of Daredevil. He's going to play the Punisher. Oh, okay. Are I, you sure about that? Yeah, they, they announced that like two I knew the ago. Punisher was going to be on there, but I had a, uh, there was a different name attached to it. I didn't know it was this guy. No, yeah, it's this. And mm, he, okay. he was on Walking Dead. He's pretty yeah, good he's in pretty that. good. Uh, I really liked just his whole side story. Uh, I'm kind of intrigued to read the book because I feel like he was a bigger character in the book. Yeah, they're, they don't they don't have enough time, I think, in this movie to flesh out the other characters, the other side characters. There's another one that's pretty well played by, uh, um, I don't know who the actress is, but she plays sort of the uh, the good-looking hot girl, the Thomas Mann sort of, or the me character sort of uh, moons over. Yeah, her story is kind of incomplete at the end. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about that too. Um, do we need to move into spoilers? I guess I don't know if we. I, I don't know if we need to spoil this film. No, 
I mean, unless, I mean, if you got stuff you want to say. Yeah, there is some stuff I wanted to talk right. about. But before we do that, I guess we can talk about the things that you like because you mentioned some of the things that I like in terms of cinematography and where they were headed with, or how they communicated their story visually. Um, yeah, I guess they did a lot of exterior shots in this film mm-hmm. to set up locations and uh, the director was willing to linger on those shots. A lot of times you'll just have a real quick cut of like a school and then you know you're at school. He would find an interesting angle a lot of times and let characters walk into a building or leave. Um, there's a great shot of a bus pulling up to a stop sign, I guess. Mm-hmm. And you see Greg's character right there in the window. And that definitely took a lot of time to set up and to do, but it's just it's a great little shot. There, uh, there are just a lot of those. Interesting angles. You look through windows a lot in this film. It feels feels like you're peering in on characters, and it feels like they're in real locations. This didn't feel like it was shot on a movie set. Yeah, didn't you tell me that um, the house that they shot, his house was... The author's. The author's yeah. actual house. Yeah. There's an interesting tracking shot when uh, his mother's berating him for some reason. And, uh, well, ostensibly, this is sort of the crux of the movie, is the mother encourages her son who's a bit of a loner outcast not really an outcast because he's a loner but he fits into all groups by maintaining a healthy distance from all groups so they all sort of respect him and like him and all and uh he just sort of moves through the world only spending any time with this earl character and then at some point his mother convinces him to start hanging out with this girl who's just been diagnosed with leukemia and uh, he goes and develops a relationship with her. And there are so many different ways this movie could have gone um, that would have been sort of tropes and uh, banal and uh, you know overdone cliche. And uh, it didn't go that way. So probably wouldn't have won all those awards had it gone that way. It would have just been just another teen romance type of movie. But because they decided to do other things with it it became a much more interesting movie is that why you're willing to forgive the narration in this film well that was what i was going to talk about in spoilers oh that's one of the things i wanted to talk about in spoilers. i was just bringing that up because in minions you don't like there being a narrator and you felt it kind of diminished the film because of it where in this film i think the narrator helps it well it's a subjective narrator yeah and um then there's also the type on the screen that adds to that it and it in Minions, it's the objective narrator that really doesn't play a role. He's just there to sort of guide the kiddies through the movie. So, yeah, no, this that that is just another extension of the character. Um, you mentioned the way that the director allows his uh, actors time to breathe by just setting the camera still. This happens on several occasions, and I really appreciated that. I love movies that do that that are paced in such a way so that they have that sort of confidence to spend a an extended period of time on without moving the camera, mm-hmm. without drawing attention to the camera and just letting those actors breathe. And then there was a whole lot of work with the foreground back you know, the depth of field mm-hmm. where the character in the you know, in the front of the foreground of the screen is is responding to things that are going on back of the screen. And uh, they can't necessarily see each other, but they're playing off of their emotions 
and it's just it was fascinating to watch from a performance perspective and sort of that combination of uh, uh, directing and acting and cinematography and the mise-en-scene and all of that that just I don't know for some reason that just gets me really excited like, no I, I get jazzed up about it no I agree and that's why I want to see more of what this director does because he definitely has an eye for talent and I, I like that he's mixed up, it seems like, you know, normal, dramatic actors. He also brought a lot of comedians. Nick Offerman, uh, Rachel's mom's played by Molly Shannon, who was uh, on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. But she has more of a dramatic role. Yeah, a little creepy. Yeah, but I, I like that. I like that, you know, being willing to mix and match His actors. His mother is uh, Connie Britton. Mm-hmm. We just saw her in This Is Where I Leave You. She had a small role in that, but I thought she was... You know, really good, really solid. But she's getting all the parts that Julia Roberts turns down. <laughs> she fits into that mold, right? Yeah, I can see that. Um, let's see, anything else you wanted to say about it? No, no, I think we can move on to spoilers. The man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. I don't want to spoil the party, so I'll go. All right, so this is what I wanted to talk about in spoilers, is the uh, the role of the unreliable narrator. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because throughout the movie, he mentions that she doesn't die. He also mentions at one point that he made a movie that killed a girl. There's this one scene where they're filming something. Me and Earl are filming something out in a field somewhere. And uh, I think Earl's brother is watching them with his giant pit bull. <laughs> and uh, the sort of love interest, the hot girl, can't remember her name, but she comes running through the field to see them. She wants to ask uh, Earl and Tom, or whatever his name is, uh, Greg, Greg, <laughs> to, uh, uh, to make a movie for the dying Olivia, or the dying girl. Rachel. Rachel. <laughs> And uh, I was thinking there's enough menace there to where this dog might attack her and kill her. And then that would be the, the end of the movie. That's what you thought was going to happen? No, but he, he did. I didn't know what was going to happen, honestly. And had he not said those things, like this girl is going to live, you don't have to worry about that. Had he not said those things, he would have removed the emotional impact at the end where she actually does die. And so there had to be enough there to where you have to be able to understand his motivations for saying it and then still leaving out the little hope that she might not die. But that's the way cancel works, I think. Did you believe him when he was saying, don't worry, she's not going to die? I don't know if I did, but I know I wanted to. Yeah, see, I I never believed it, but I thought that's the idea of that false hope that we try and give ourselves. Right, but that false hope does work. It keeps you going. It, and it keeps you going as a as a audience member. Mm-hmm. It allows you to sort of give in to the humor of the film. And, you know, you kind of half expect this girl to get better. I think. Maybe you're more cynical than I am. No, I don't think you are. <laughs> I think that the movie earns its whatever emotions it creates in the in the uh in the audience i think it does it 
deftly and on purpose. Yeah. And I would argue most people watching this would believe the narrator when he says she doesn't die. For me, I, I felt, I'm always hyper aware of um, the machinations going on. Right. And I, I, I was like, oh, this is perfectly timed because the movie's starting to get a little too serious. We need to lighten the mood up a little bit. You have to tell the audience everything's going to be okay. I don't, I don't think that I believed it at any point. I know that I wanted to believe it. And that was because this is one of the very few movies where I actually was invested in the character. And again, this goes back to my not being a sociopath. Because this is a big uh, question for a lot of my students all year. Was whether or not I had emotions. <laughs> or whether or not I cared about people. Like, they all know I care about dogs. I think some kid was show showed me a picture on her phone about uh, this hideous thing that happened to her cat she had to have this surgery she had like 87 stitches on her belly i think she crawled mm -hmm. under a fence or something and cut it and it just flapped open and i mean she showed me this picture and my eyes started glassing over i felt bad for the kid a little bit but i felt bad for the cat mm -hmm. and uh some other girl was standing by my desk she was like really <laughs> i said sorry I, you know she says, you don't care about any of us, but you care about that cat. I said, well, I mean, that's hyperbole. <laughs> but anyway, so with respect to movie care, this is why I don't get, I do not get invested in horror movies. I don't care. I don't care what happens to those people. Yeah, I mean, this movie does a good job of making you care about the characters. I think my problem is, Cancer to me is like Chekhov's gun. If you show a gun in a in a story, that gun has to get used at some point, according to Chekhov, right? Right. If you give a if you give a character cancer, they have to die of cancer in that film. There are very very few movies I can think of where a character doesn't die of cancer when they have cancer. I think if this movie had chosen a miracle ending, I give it enough credit. A miracle cure or something because people go into remission at all for you know weird reasons at all times i think that it could have earned it i still think the writing would have been smart enough to have earned that sort of ending and that's why i kind of held out hope that you know there might be something more to it there might be something different there's always that little edge of hope that was attached to his statements and i don't think that they, they would have necessarily been there had he not been saying those things so I understand I was being manipulated. But like I said, I don't know if I ever believed it. I know that I wanted to believe it. And yeah. Yeah. That's why I'm, I'm proud of myself as a human being. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my wife said that this movie wasn't as sad as Fault in Our Stars, that Fault in Our Stars goes after your emotions much more. Huh. Or especially, you know, just uh, to try and make you weep. Where right. this movie focuses so much more on uh, Greg and how he deals with, becoming friends with someone who has cancer in his own life and that he has no real direction in his life. All right. Well, that didn't make me sad necessarily. Yeah. His, his, I, I don't think his journey made me sad. In fact, in order to keep from becoming a complete basket case, the last scene of the movie, I couldn't watch Rachel. Mm. I could not watch her as she was dying. I knew she was dying at that point. I had to focus on, uh, Greg, mm -hmm. or 
Is that his name, Greg? Yes. I keep thinking I keep getting mixed up with Thomas Wayne. I had to focus on him and stare at him the entire time to make sure that I wouldn't just become a complete puddle of, you know, sniffles and and gasps. I choked to death. Yeah. Well, I mean, Olivia Cook has these amazing wet eyes. Yeah. Uh, I was telling you before we did the show uh, that there's just something about that wetness. There's like this permeableness. Like you feel like you can see into her soul. It was actually she was crying also. That made but not hard. through the whole film. No. She's crying. But I mean, there just she just has these big eyes that just seem so soft and delicate, and right. you really feel like they're a gateway into her soul. You, you feel like you're seeing everything when you just look into her face. You see all the emotions. I mean, she does a lot of very small, nuanced right. things that just work well. You know, uh, she actually did shave her head for this. That yeah. wasn't... It wasn't a bald cap. No. There were times where it, like her skull would scrunch up, and I was like, oh, right. bald cap. So I was surprised uh, when I saw that no, she had shaved her head. Yeah. it's That's quite a thing to ask someone. I don't care if they are an actress, but if they're 17 years old... Like, if you asked me to shave my head... I think it would be pretty easy. It wouldn't take very long. But yeah. to ask a 17-year-old girl to shave her head. But that's how you show you're a serious actress now. Well, that's why I think she'll win Academy Award. Uh, Natalie Portman did it. Demi Moore shaved her head. Yeah. Natalie Portman did it in uh, V for Vendetta. V for Vendetta so. and Demi Moore did it in G.I. Jane. Yeah. It's a rite of passage. Right. This girl took her rite of passage at a very young age. Didn't uh, Anne Hathaway do it for Les Mis? I think they didn't and shave her And she won head. an Oscar. She just They cut her head. Well, it's the it's also the key to winning an Oscar is is having some hideous sickness mm-hmm. and then being physically deformed in some way. So this girl's got the trifecta. No, I, no, I, I think she's a promising young young actress, and I'm eager to see more of her stuff. Uh, it didn't help me either that she sort of looked like one of my favorite students from the past, <laughs> and I didn't realize that at the time until later when I. It's like, well, she, she, I thought that she just reminded me of some other actress. And I was like, man, and finally I was like, oh, yeah, she looks like that kid. Wow. And then I went and, you know, I realized, okay, maybe I do care about my students. some Or student, some weird way. So, anyway. No, I, no, I just, I hope she is a good actress in other stuff. I think one of the things that might screw up in future films, she may not be able to move well. In this movie, she's always sitting. Yeah, she doesn't have to move. She doesn't walk or anything. Well, she all of her other movies are horror movies. I imagine she's moving well in those. It is believable. That's a big thing for you. I don't know. Being able to run, being able to move, being able to walk. Well, it is a different type of acting than when you're you know, sedentary. Wow. I mean, she does a lot of very quiet acting where she's not having to do anything big and right. believable. I don't know. I'm not saying she can't do it. I'm just eager to see her in a different role. You want to see her run. You want yeah. to chase her. I mean, if she's going to play someone in a wheelchair, she'll be great in that role. <laughs> if you're casting uh, She's going to play an Olympic athlete? I don't know. <laughs> Jury's out on that. Actually, honestly, I think that her she was a dancer. I think I read that in her bio. Right. She was, originally, she was a dancer, and she tried out for a TV commercial. I know that's how R.J. Seiler got his gigs so he was a da- on a, in a dance troupe too with his brothers hmm. and uh tried out for commercials so maybe i'm just conflating the two yeah, fair enough um did you 
Do you, did you recognize the titles, the movie titles of the that Mo- me and Earl did? Most of them. Do you know the movies that they're based off of? Do you think? Yeah, like right. I, I recommend. I recognize the documentary right away. All right, I'm going to give you the title. You tell me the movie. All right. Anat- Anatomy of a Burger. Anatomy of a Murder. Ate half of my lunch. I don't know that one. It's probably eight and a half weeks. Oh, Because it's okay. a one half up there. I was thinking eight heads in a duffel bag. <laughs> oh, wow. The 400 Bros. 400 Blows. Which is also a poster that's behind in, in mm-hmm. most of the movie. Yeah, that's right, French New Wave or something. Senior Citizen Kane. Yeah, Citizen Kane. That's great. He's got him with a cane. It's like whacking at some whippersnappers. All right, My Dinner with Andre the Giant. My Dinner with Andre. Grumpy Cul-de-sacs. Uh, grumpier Old Men? No, Better Than Mean Streets. It's One critic says it's better than Mean Streets. It's Grumpy Cul-de-sacs. I'm so confused. The movie Mean Streets? Oh, okay. I thought you were doing a whole other one. No, uh, no, no, no. No, I'm still on the same. Uh, Mono Rash? I... Rashomon. Oh, okay. Yeah. He actually talks about that some. And then this is my favorite title from, from the list of movies. Don't look now because a creepy ass dwarf is about to kill you. Damn. I don't, I don't think that that's one. based on anything. But I saw it up there and I laughed. I know that I see because I can see all that at once. Mm-hmm. Like when I read, I, I read blocks and I see like all that at once. There were probably three or four other people in the movie theater. One really old lady, a couple people that came late and were talking through half of the movie. Something tells me that they didn't read all that when it came up on the screen. But when it did and I saw it, I laughed like, yeah, I don't know, maybe like Tony C. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's hilarious. And I know that the people around me thought I was, a, yeah, just an idiot. Because it was only, it only flashed up there for a little bit. Oh, God. Yeah, funny. no, I was trying to read all the titles. <sighs> That was funny. There was the scene where, um, and I had just seen Midnight Cowboy uh, last year. I think last summer I watched it and uh, for the first time. And then they play that scene where uh, it, they, they're playing that song. 238 Cowboy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did the scene, uh, Earl is putting pennies on his, on his eyes. Mm-hmm. But it's got that really affecting sad song at the end of, uh, you know, Midnight Cowboy, but Earl is about is cracking up while he's doing it. It's just I don't know, ah, little stuff like that just made me laugh, and that's that's very different than the type of humor. I mean, it's there's a similarity with the type of humor that you would see in um, Wes Anderson and that, but it's just a little bit different. It's a little bit more real. It's mm-hmm. not as uh, stylized. And that, that's sort of what made me like this movie. Well, in more. some ways, it's like Family Guy almost. Because they just cut away to these yeah. little short yeah, films. those little things were funny. And it's just designed to be a five-second joke. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's a good movie, man. No. Is it, in your, is it in your list of top movies? It's definitely in my top ten right now. I don't know where it'll be at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a strong one that I'd recommend. I'd recommend it to most of our students. Yeah, it's uh, like, I guess it's R-rated though, is it? PG thirteen. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, no, they were very careful about their f bombs. You know what? They would bleep it out when they were watching that documentary, so that uh, Greg could see it when they were doing their version of uh, 
Agira the God. Okay. Or the documentary on the making of that. Right, right. I think I think that's the uh uh Werner Herzog film yeah. that they were doing. Yeah. Um I don't know if I'll be able to show this movie in my classes though. But it would be a good movie to show to talk about a whole lot of stuff. Because there's so much stuff you could talk oh, about. Oh, because you would start crying during yeah. that? Yeah. Like I start crying at the end of Pazic Horror. And yeah. that girl starts singing, I have to get up and leave. I don't like to cry. I yeah, don't like the kids to see me to cry. I didn't think about teaching this to a film class. It takes me. It takes a big man to cry. It could work. And, and like I said, I'm interested to read the novel because I do think the adaptation of this is interesting. Oh, speaking of novels, um, go set a Watchmen. Are you going to wa- read that? Probably. I think we need to talk about it on the show. All right. This could actually be the literature part of the Literature and Film Podcast. Yeah. Or part of it. I think I'm going to be real disappointed with the book. I already read the first chapter and it's... It's not a first-person narration. It's a third-person objective narrator. So they already made a dramatic change from one of the things that made uh, To Kill a Mockingbird interesting. Yeah, I just feel like I'm going to say this isn't Harper Lee's writing. I feel like I've read uh, To Kill a Mockingbird so many times. I mean, I've taught it 30-plus times, I think, that I'll be able to recognize her writing style. And if it's not there, I'm going to get upset and there's a there's a lot of weird and stuff going on with this uh book yeah i know i've been avoiding this when it was discovered and who discovered it and it it just seems like a cash and it's it had pre-orders for four million copies yeah it set a new record yeah so all right so yeah yeah we should do that for that on an upcoming show um the listeners want to know about the box office challenge. Do you have those numbers? Uh, right now, it's looking like Minions is about 120 million. We're recording this on Monday, so final numbers aren't in. 115. 115? Yeah, I saw them last night. Those are estimates. Uh, nothing will be confirmed until about Tuesday or Wednesday. Oh, okay. If All it's right. 115, then I'm up on you by like 2 million. So it's close, and we're both down to our last two films. So you have Ant-Man, Ant-Man has to outperform uh, Mission Impossible. All right. And Insidious or Divergent or Sinister 2 or whatever. Sinister 2, you has have to outperform Fantastic 4. Uh, yeah, I'm still screwed. Yeah, I think you could have made it a lot closer if you hadn't gone with Sinister 2. You kind of gave up there at the end. You could have made it a lot closer if you hadn't gone with Magic Mike. I'm well, very surprised with how uh, much that underperformed. <sighs> I still might have a chance, though. Ant-Man might be that saving glory. So go see it this weekend, people. <laughs> All right. So me and the Earl and the Dying Girl and Minions. Yes. Should go see one of them. Unless you have kids. And then you should see the other. All right. So uh, our outro is being performed by jpcaleo.com. As we mentioned at the beginning of the show, the song is called Old Dog. And uh, you can go to his website at jpcleomusic.com and he'll give you some free songs he's a very interesting artist we want to thank him for providing our theme music for us uh, this week and hope to hear more from him in the show he's got a lot of interesting music Um, so for Mr. Two Frames over there it's been a pleasure I'm the L Train Hoxet Bonham everybody there be dragons I don't really mind if it rains or shines today Voices all around my fingers ache 
I've been singing those same old songs day after day. It's left an imprint in my brain. I had a beer or two late last night. Just trying to help myself fall asleep. It's getting hard to bounce back as the years fly by. What else am I supposed to do? Darling, I'm sorry I couldn't get up this morning. Sorry, didn't see you out the door. Darling, don't you worry, I'll still be rocking and rolling. There ain't no new tricks left for this old dog. I think I lost a couple of pounds of my weight on that beer stained barroom floor. I work hard. Harder than you think. Sometimes it's hard to see, I know. I do my best to keep the bread on the table. Run the landlord away from the door. I just hope it's enough for you. Know that I won't ask for more. Darling, I am sorry I couldn't get up this morning. Sorry, didn't see you out the door. Darling, don't you worry, I'll still be rocking and rolling. There ain't no new tricks left for this old dog. Darling, I am sorry I couldn't get up this morning. Sorry I didn't see you out the door. Darling, don't you worry, I'll still be rocking and rolling. There ain't no new tricks left for this old dog. There ain't no new tricks left for this old dog. There ain't no new tricks left for this old dog. Hello, laughers. Thanks for listening.